I'm going to have a stand one more time. I know that you just got settled in, but I'd like us to pray today. You know, I want us to pray not only for people that are going through difficulties, but I want to pray for the people in Morocco right now. I know that a lot of people have lost their lives from that terrible earthquake, and we have a couple that we have that actually served there, and they're okay. Somebody, yeah, they've talked to them. They're doing okay, but how many know it's a big trauma? And my prayer for the people in Morocco is that they're going to have this crisis experience that will bring them to the Christ. You know, isn't that a good thing? That there's an awakening. You know, sometimes we have to have a major change in our life before we change. And, and sometimes we have external things come to us that are very negative. And yet God can take a very negative thing and use it for a good thing. And he does it all the time. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your amazing many manifold blessings in our lives We thank you, Lord, that whatever our need is right now, we can lift our hands and say, Lord, I give my need to you. I'm going to leave this place leaving that burden, that anxious thought, that concern, that need. Uh, I'm going to leave it with you today. I don't know how you're going to meet that need. I haven't figured it out. But your word says to trust in you with all of my heart and lean not to my own understanding. So we're going to do that today. And we're going to, you know, know that you're going to direct us in the way we should go. You're going to lead us along the right path. And we just thank you for that. And we think of the people in Morocco. So many people are grieving, loss of loved ones. That's so painful. We understand we've experienced grief in various measures in our lives. And so we pray for those that are grieving deeply. But I pray out of their deepest sorrow that the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ will reach down and reach them in their pain. And that you will do a great work. Not just the restoration of their physical lives, but the restoration of their soul. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to shift gears on you. I know when I came back in the fall here, everyone thought, oh, he's going to start right back into Jeremiah. But you know what I decided to do? Uh, I, I think last week, if you were here, I had Amy speak, and we focused on praying for people. How many remember that? If you were here last week, we were focused on praying for people, but now we've kind of launched an offensive. If, if you were looking at this in a military sort of way, we're actually on the offensive, and we know that we're moving into Satan's territory. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because there's many captives in his kingdom, but the gates of hell cannot prevail against the advancing church. And we start by advancing in prayer. That's what we're doing. And we believe that as we keep moving in this direction, we're going to continue to share the good news about Jesus. That's the greatest need the culture has today, to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. It'll change their lives, not only in the moment, but for all of eternity. So we're going to go look at the gospel of John. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop in Jeremiah, put the gospel of John in there, because when we come back to Jeremiah, you're going to see how beautifully it fits. Because what you're going to discover at the end of Jeremiah, that Jesus, or Yahweh, is over all nations. And sometimes I think we get a very focused thing on it's the Jewish people and it's the Christian people in the New Testament. But I'm going to declare to you today, he is the Lord over all. He's the Lord over all nations, and we're going to discover that. Now, this past week, I ran into a book by D.A. Carson. I actually owned it, didn't know it. I own it electronically. So I have a lot of books I own electronically, but I probably picked this one up because it intrigued me, and I started reading this book entitled Gagging God. 
Christianity confronts pluralism. So <clears throat> you have to understand something. D.A. Carson is an academic. So I'm going to quote something from him, but I'm going to explain it. How's that? Does that sound fair? Because all of a sudden, I'm going to unpack a lot of ideas here that I think is really important we understand. He says the problem of privatization. Now, if you looked up that word in the dictionary, it would give you an economic definition. But what he means by the word is the individualism as a supreme authority. In other words, people today are living a life unto themselves. It's a private life. They're determining for themselves. They're, in a sense, we are our own God. Follow what I'm saying? We have put ourselves in the place of God. That's, that's all part of this idea of privatization. He goes on, uh, the problems of privatization, relativism, which means there's really, I'm going to summarize it, no absolutes. Philosophical pluralism. Now, pluralism is not a bad thing. You know, like we have a plurality of people groups and cultures, and none of that's bad. But philosophical pluralism is all things are considered of equal value. Now, how many know that not every idea is equal to every idea? Isn't that true? Some ideas are superior other ideas. And so that's problematic. And then he goes, skepticism. In philosophy, this, you know, we, we just think this is just doubt. No, no, in philosophy, it's the theory that certain knowledge is impossible to know. It's a skepticism to say you can never know that. As a matter of fact, what is happening in our society today, they're borrowing from the church this idea of interpretation or hermeneutics that we do as we study the scripture, we try to explain what it means. They're doing that with everything in society, the culture is, and they're doing something called deconstructionism. You go, wait a minute, pastor, this is way what I wasn't expecting this morning. I know, but just bear with me this morning because it'll help you understand where our culture is coming from. Deconstructionism means that you cannot know anything whatsoever. That's all part of this, what we call postmodernity. It denies that object, objective truth is possible because we've all been tainted by our cultural backgrounds and therefore, you know, everything we've said that's not necessarily right because it's just our viewpoint or the historical viewpoint of other people and we've all been affected by it. So what they're really leaving us with is an ocean of uncertainty. That's what we're left with in our culture today. He goes on, ethical openness largely controls the mental thought process of most of the university students today. It's not, I'm not saying it's the student, but I'm saying this is what they're getting. And so they're affected by this and a substantial members, a number of others. A lot of people are affected by this. See, our culture, you know, we, we sometimes think, well, you know, we're all thinking our own thoughts. No, we're not. We're all being affected by everybody else. And so our culture has a dominant worldview that's shaping up, but it's leaving people with the idea that, you know what, you can believe whatever you want to. As long as it's good for you, fine. As long as it's good for me, it's fine. That's where we've come to. How many are seeing that? That's where people are at. So all of a sudden, when you try to share the gospel, you've got people going, well, that's good for you, right? That's how they think. So here's a guy, Charles Coulson, you know. Uh, he, uh, the, as a matter of fact, he goes on to say, this is, this is scarcely surprising that the notion that one particular religious figure and one religious perspective can be universally valid, normative, and binding upon all peoples and all cultures is widely rejected today as arrogant 
and intellectually untenable in our pluralistic world. How's that? That's a big mouthful, but basically what he's saying is people today think that as Christians, we're intolerant and intolerable because, you know, they're going, how can you guys be certain that you're right? They, they disagree with us. And they're saying there's so many other ideas. They're saying, that's what you think. You're wrong because everything is equal. And obviously you guys believe that you're the right way and everybody else is wrong, so that's an intolerable position. That's quite, in their mind, this is the ultimate expression of arrogancy. I don't know if you've run into this, but when you're talking to people that are smart, that's intelligent, intellectual, that's how they think. They don't say it to you, but that's what they're thinking. You know, and you're running into this idea and it's just being permeated down in every level of society and all these people are being influenced and affected by this way of thinking. And so a guy like Charles Colson, some of you don't know who he is, but I'll just give you an idea. He was a special aide to Richard Nixon. This is a long time ago. He was an attorney. And he, got, he was involved in the Watergate cover-up. That's a big historical American event, Charles Colson. Colson became a follower of Jesus out of that crushing experience in his life. He went to jail. One of the few people that went to jail for this thing. But while he was in jail, he was a brand new Christian, he began to see a mission field. And by the time he got out of jail, which wasn't too many years later, he had a calling of God to start ministering to prisoners, and he started a ministry called Prison Fellowship. Okay? So and he, since recently, he had just passed away. But this is what he was doing. He was a very smart guy, and he was sharing his testimony, but he was running into these problems. Because these ideas that I'm sharing with you have now been around for about 20, 25 years now. It's been very intense. It's just getting worse. And he was sharing, and this person was easily dismissing his idea as, as uh, uh, Donald uh, Carson is saying here, because he was appealing to New Age relativism. He's just basically saying, hey, that's just what you think. And Colson was appealing to the authority of Scripture in his arguments for its historical validity, but he was, it was proving unconvincing. This, this was not getting through to this guy whatsoever. He just wasn't buying it. And, and so then he starts talking about, well, what's going to happen after you die? So we start talking about the afterlife. That became very futile. So Colson's now realizing, I'm not getting through to this guy. So then he switches, and he's, he's getting frustrated in himself, and he says, well, then he brings up a contemporary illustration. He said, you know, Woody Allen, you know, I'm at, this must have been at the time this film came out, Crimes and Misdemeanors. He says, hey, you know, in this film, a doctor hires a killer to murder his mistress, and he gets away with it. But he's haunted by guilt. This is the premise of the movie. <clears throat> Colson is sharing this with this guy. And he says, unlike the plot in uh, Dostolsky's Crime and Punishment, where, where that doctor finally decides, however, this doctor in the, in the story of uh, Woody Allen, decides that there's no justice in the universe and therefore no need to suffer the pangs of conscience. So he basically is searing his conscience. He, in his mind, this is just part of the evolution of humanity that we can get to the point where we can do evil and never feel anything bad about it. Is that, is, as if that's a progression. I would say that's a regression. But that's what he's saying. He says, ruthlessness wins. When Colson asks, when we do wrong, is that the only choice? Either live tormented by guilt or kill our conscience and live like beasts. And he said, when he made that statement, he said, the guy began to pay attention. Like, how are you wanting to live and treat people? I mean, let's face it, if that's the way we're going to do things, we can be ruthless and tear people apart and walk away and have no qualms about doing the evil we've done. 
Oh, by the way, this kind of flies in the face of another whole idea in our culture that man is basically good. I want to shatter that. I've been studying here the last uh, two or three months on the Second World War, the First World War. When I look at the last century, the inhumanity of man to man or woman to woman or whatever you want to describe their humanity, let me just say this. We are not basically good. We need help. And that's what the good news is all about. Colson goes on to talk about Tolstoy's War and Peace in which one of the characters, Pierre, is wrestling with his conscience, cries out, why is it that I know what is right, but I do what is wrong? In other words, there's a sense in all of our lives of right and wrong. And so the Apostle Paul in the scriptures speaks to this question. Actually, in Romans chapter 7 and 8, he deals with it. But it all leads back to the central figure of the Bible, and that's Jesus. You see, Jesus is not introduced in the Old Testament, but he's foreshadowed there, and he's promised there until you get to the New Testament where the story of Jesus unfolds and is moving towards the future. Who is Jesus? The central character in the Bible. Great question. It's a question that has been asked over and over and over again over the past 2,000 years. And what you and I believe about Jesus determines the quality of our life and the destiny of our lives. It's an important question. Jesus himself raised it. He's traveling in Palestine. He's traveling with his disciples. He's at Caesarea Philippi. And he says to his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And uh, some of them say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. What about you, he said? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers. He says, you're the Messiah, the Son of of the living God. This was a very amazing proclamation by Peter. Because Jesus then says to him, blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. In other words, Jesus himself had never told him who he really was. But Jesus was doing all the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. He was walking around healing the sick, you know, raising the dead, churning water into wine. How many, you know, hanging out with Jesus? Could you imagine hanging out with Jesus? How many be a little impressed when, you know, you see him, you know, here's a blind guy never seen before, boom, he starts to see. Here's a guy never walks, starts walking. Here's a person that's dead, starts walking, you know, gets, gets out of his casket. I mean, how many be a little impressed with Jesus? Wouldn't, I, wouldn't he get your attention? You know, he was causing, kind of causing a little bit of a stir. Can you see why thousands came to listen to him? People brought sick people to him. People that were troubled and tormented were being set free. What a beautiful, beautiful character Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't tell him, but God reveals, the Father reveals this to Simon. And Jesus says, man, you're blessed that you have this revelation. I want you to know that word revealed is so profound. It takes the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to reveal Jesus Christ to us. We need to understand that. It's so critical. You know, sometimes we're talking to people and they're not getting it. And we think, what's wrong with this person? They need a revelation. They need the work of the Spirit. You know, it's not just, you can't just argue people into God's kingdom. It doesn't work that way. That's why, as a church, we're praying. We are praying that the God of our, our Heavenly Father will send the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of the lives of the people that we signed up last week to pray for. And if you didn't know what I'm talking about, maybe watch the sermon last week, because Amy did a great job, and she talked about the necessity of prayer. And I'm, we're, we're actually launching a campaign right now to see people 
actually have their hearts opened and their minds revealed who Christ is so that they can come into God's kingdom. It's very powerful. Now, who is Jesus? Well, you know, how many know that the society, some people are gonna make an excuse. They, they don't wanna accept the fact that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. So you get somebody like Dan Brown. Uh, he wrote a book a number of years ago called Da Vinci Code. And what he does is, it's a fictional book. I want you to keep remembering the word fiction. Does anybody know what that word means? Not true. Non-fiction means it's true. Fiction means it's just made up. So he's able to say a bunch of stuff in his book that's not true, but nobody can do anything about it because it's not true. But do you know how many people read fiction books as if they're non-fiction? And they start believing it. So he says this statement, and I think it's reflecting the attitude of a lot of people. He says in this book, well, you know, many scholars claim that the early church literally stole Jesus from his original followers, hijacking his human message, shrouding it in an impenetrable cloak of divinity, and using it to expand their power. In other words, he's saying, yeah, these 12, these 11 guys, you know, they hijacked Jesus, made him sound like he's God, because, you know, that made them important. Yeah, and they all died. That's how important they were. You know, it was kind of a very threatening situation to be preaching that sermon. Didn't, didn't always go well for you. And that's what we find out. But here's the problem. Leo Davis, who is in his book on the seven ecumenical councils, he says the problem, which was actually confronting the bishops, because his argument is that they did this primarily at Nicaea in 324 AD. But the reality is that what was going on there was totally different. They weren't making Jesus God. They were trying to explain his nature and how Jesus could be God, you know, with a human nature and a divine nature and how that all worked because it's a bit of a mystery, okay? And so they were, you know, basically addressing this, uh, the, the, the basic question confronting all the previous Christian theologians. It's not simply whether Jesus is God. The problem was how with the monotheistic, which means the, there's one God, system within the church inherited by our Jewish background, it was still possible to maintain the unity of God while insisting on the deity of one who was distinct from God the Father. So how can you say there's one God and yet Jesus is also God and he's distinct from the Father and also the Holy Spirit is God and he's distinct from the Son? And Augustine later on, 100 years later, he's a, he's a theologian and a pastor, and he said, he summarized it, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father's not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, there's only one God. How many are confused? <laughs> well, he's explaining a mystery. You know, it is a mystery. We cannot fathom in our minds how one God can be three distinct persons. It just doesn't compute. It's not, we take it by faith. But we know that Jesus himself says he's God. And that's why I'm preaching from John's gospel. Because I believe today people have no problem believing that Jesus lived. There's too many evidences that Jesus lived on this planet. Okay? So that most people are not going to deny the humanity of Jesus. But what they will deny is the deity or the godness of Jesus. Because if you believe Jesus is God, it shapes everything about our lives. And that's what people don't want to buy. But let's go back to John here. So we're starting at John, 
And we're seeing here his purpose. Now, I don't know if you notice this when you read Bible, but every book has a purpose. And John's gospel is unlike Matthew, Mark, Luke. How many have kind of noticed it? It's, these other three gospels, they're, they're called synoptic because there's a lot of similarity. But when you get to John's gospel, it's a totally different gospel. He's doing something totally different. And this is what John's telling us. He's telling us what he's trying to convey to us, the audience. Because he wrote 30 years after the other ones. He says, Jesus performed many other signs. You know how many signs are in John's gospel? Seven. So John says, listen, I did, I'm not telling you all the miracles. You can go to the other gospels and find all these miracles. I'm giving you seven of them. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the purpose why I'm sharing these with you. So you'll become a believer in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And when you do believe that, you will have life in his name. That's his purpose. He wants us to experience eternal life. Now, when we think of eternal life, eternal life is not just forever life, or when I die, I'll have eternity. No, that's not what he's talking about. Eternal life is a quality of life. Do you know the moment you receive Jesus, you receive eternal life? That's why Jesus said, I've come, you know, to give you life and that more abundantly. Jesus is promising us a quality of life. It's eternal in nature. It's a beautiful life. You know, I think a lot of Christians, we don't fully grasp what we've really received. That's part of our problem. Okay, so Jesus, John is trying to address and refute some of the, what we call the early Gnostics, the people who had a secret understanding. They said, you know, you, you guys don't have it all right. There's some secret knowledge you need to have before you really have all of this stuff. John goes, no, no, no. You just received Jesus. Okay, now, in the Gospel of John, we notice in the opening statement the challenge he brings to those who would simply try to humanize Jesus and deny his deity. So he's got a purpose. He's trying to show us that Jesus is God. That's the purpose, and we're going to see it very strongly in this Gospel. So I want to look at four things here real quickly about Jesus. First of all, his pre-existence. John introduces Jesus as existing before his earthly life. He begins by showing us his uniqueness. He's not just a historical person, he's God. And it's seen in verse one as being distinct from the Father, yet equal. He's seen as a creator. It's described, here he begins by describing Jesus in a very unique way, by calling him Logos. Now, many of you may not know this, or may, maybe you do, that the New Testament is primarily written in Greek. Uh, some of us had to study a little bit of Greek. Okay, so the word, the word we translate word in this particular text in John 1 is logos. But you have to understand the idea behind this word. The idea behind the word came from the Greek logos, which implies the intelligence behind the idea and its transmission or communication. You know, so some of the Greeks had moved beyond their ancient mythologies of the gods and saw an orderly world suggesting an intelligence behind it all, which they called logos. Now this is a big movement. How many have ever studied Greek mythology or you had it in high school or something? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so how many know that the, the Greeks, their, their gods were all like human. They had human characteristics that are very fickle. We'll get back to that idea. But 
some of these Greeks were looking past that and they said, no, 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 there's an intelligence that created this world. We're looking at the world and it's too ordered. How many know there's a lot of Christ, there's a lot of scientists today, they're actually talking now like intelligent design. This is the way they describe the creation of the world. Intelligent design. You know, I remember a cartoon years ago, I love this cartoon. A bunch of scientists are climbing a mountain and they have this sign, little flag, and they're holding it. It says intelligent design. And when they get the top of the mountain, there's a bunch of theologians sitting at the top and going, we already knew that. <laughs> you know. Of course there's an intelligent design. There's an in, and, and that suggests there's an intelligent designer. How many see that? How many know it's amazing that people talk as, you know, like they don't seem to put two and two together here. It's just common sense that says, you know, if there's intelligent design in the world, there has to be someone designing. You see, it's not all random. The very fact that you use the word intelligence suggests something's beyond that. Now, John Prologue starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. What was he saying here? He's saying the Word made everything that you and I see. Everything that's ever been created was made by the Word. Is that what it says? And the Word was with God, which shows a distinction, and separateness, and the word was God, talking about union and oneness. Powerful prologue. What a beginning. John just goes right at it, doesn't he? You know, he zeroes in. Uh, Merrill Tenney says this, in the beginning recalls the opening words of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The expression does not refer to a particular moment of time, but assumes an end, a timeless eternity. In other words, John is introducing us the idea that Jesus, before his coming to earth as a human being, he, he was eternal. That's what he's telling us in chapter one here, verses one to three. He's an eternal being. He's God. He's always been. I love it. You know, you talk to some young person, he goes, well, where did God come from? Well, God's eternal. He's always been. You know, he's not a created being. See, we have a hard time with that because we're all created. God's eternal. Uh, he goes on here to talk about his eternal nature, the equality of his relationship with the Father and the Spirit, his identity uh, of his personhood. Jesus is the Word of God. He was there with the Father in the beginning, creating our world. We find in Genesis that at the creation, God spoke the world into existence. It said, let there be light, and there was light. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, it says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That means, you know, God just made something out of nothing. He just spoke it into being. How, how many think that's amazing? God could just say, I, I, I want light now. Boop, light, you know. You know, I want, I want heavens. I want stars. Bang. I want animals. Toom. I want, I'm going to create some people here. I'll put a little dust here. Breathe on them. Boom. Human beings. Hey, this is impressive stuff. We're reading the scriptures here. God's a creator. You know, he goes on here to say, uh, you know, in, in this, this whole prologue is basically to show that God's three persons, distinct, equal, yet one. And we find it in Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. He's using a plural form there. The word for God in the book in Genesis, in the Hebrew language, Elohim is a pluralized form. 
So a lot of people go, how did the Jews become monastic, you know, have a monotheistic understanding of God when, you know, you use the word Elohim? It's a mystery. We're talking a mystery here. But somebody obviously knew what they were doing. They were inspired by God. God says, use this word. Boom, he puts that word in like that. Then we read, if you're confused that God is one, then God tells the people of Israel, he says, now, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he's, he's stamping on them this monotheistic idea. There's only one. It's a very powerful idea. Now John relates in the third verse that it was through him that all things were made. Through whom? Through Christ. Through the word. Colossians 1, 1 to 15, we read this. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I know so many people get messed up by that word firstborn. They think it's the first person born. No, it's preeminent, supreme. He goes on to say, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, those are all spiritual beings. All things have been created through him and for him. So here's what I need to do. Why is this so critical? Let me go back and say this. God created everything for himself. So in eternity, when God was designing you and me, he had a purpose. Everyone in this room, you have a design and divine purpose. Is that beautiful? So what happens is when we really get to know God and we surrender our lives fully to God, what we're doing is beginning to discover God's designed purpose for our lives. And the, and the more we discover that, the more exciting our life becomes. Because now, we're actually living life as he intended for us to live. And that's the abundant life that Jesus is talking about, that we've actually surrendered our will to his and are now doing his will and not our will. And that is a powerful thing. You know, I can't, I can't stress this enough. The key to life is getting to know God. The key to life is to know his will. The key to life is to do his will. And then there's a tremendous sense of fulfillment that comes into our lives. You know, it's like I finally got the right tool for the right job. You know, some of you guys that are mechanics, you know what I'm talking about? You know, you go into your garage and you need a, a specific tool for the job and you don't have that tool. And then you try to get a different tool to make, make do and it's, it's not really working. Anybody ever have that experience? You know, and then you're thinking, maybe I should go down to the hardware store and get the right tool for the job. It would make this job a lot easier. And when you and I discover how we fit in God's plan, it just makes life far better for us because we were designed by God for a specific purpose. That's why we were created in the slot that we're put into. You weren't, you know, you're, you're, the year you were born wasn't accidental. The day you were born was not accidental. God put you in the right place at the right time, in the right family. You say, yeah, you should see my family, Pastor. Hey, listen, God knows what he's doing. And you know what? Sometimes people that you know, start out struggling and all the rest of it, later on, they, they end up really doing well because they've learned you know, some things through struggle. See, I'm a big advocate. You know, we, we, we're trying to keep people from ever having to struggle or have any difficulty or hardship. We're not doing people a favor. God uses all of those things to develop us. Then he goes on to say, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. 
In the book of Hebrews we read, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So if you're wondering who made the universe, the answer is really simple. Jesus made it. That would be the right answer on a test that I would give. Now, I don't know about all university professors would give you that answer, but that's the right answer because it says so here in the book of Hebrews. And he goes on to say, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Hey, if you are the exact representation of somebody, you're it. He's God. That's what he's telling us here. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Author William Hall, writing in his, about John's introduction, he says, one basic purpose of the prologue is to identify the historical Jesus with the eternal logos and thereby contend that what men heard in his brief ministry is what God has always been trying to say to the world. Jesus came to tell us what God wanted to say. Beautiful. The emphasis on the pre-existence of the word was not speculative, but practical, designed to meet two current problems. Number one, the Jews tended to set veneration or the worship of scripture above the claims of Jesus because of its great antiquity. Isn't that interesting? You know, a lot of people feel like the older the religion, the more, you know, the more valid it really was. That's how the ancients thought. And so they venerated, they worship scripture, they worship Torah. And Jesus says, you think you know what's in that book and it's speaking of me. You really don't know the book. Can you imagine them arguing with the God they said they, whom they worship? They were arguing with Yahweh. I don't know if you guys catch this. There was a lot of irony reading through the New Testament. When I read it that way, I'm going, when you're talking to Jesus, you're talking to God. And so here they are arguing with God about what his word says. You know, that would be like, you know, saying, well, I know what the author meant, and the author's saying, that's not what I meant. You know? Come on now. And John uh, then replied, uh, John replied that the revelation given in Jesus was actually much older than the Old Testament, for he already existed with God before history. So Jesus is older than the scriptures, guys. Secondly, many of the Greeks, in contrast to the Jews, attached no absolute authority in ancient scripture. That's where our culture's at today. In their popular mythologies, the gods were fickle. How many have studied mythology, Greek mythology? Aren't they all fickle, those gods? Yeah, they're just like, it's, it's almost all the gods are you know, showing you all the bad traits of human behavior. You know, we're kind of deifying humanity by, by doing that. I think that's what we're doing today is deifying humanity in a lot of ways, you know? To John, the word was guaranteeing the dependability of the word. The logos is forever constant, unconditioned by historical changes. In other words, we have an unchanging God with an unchanging message. And here's one of the applications. God doesn't need to change because he's perfect, but everybody else needs to make a lot of changes because we're a long ways from what God's like. And that's part of why we're here. We're trying to grow and develop and change and become more like him. You know, the other ramification of Jesus being God is that he's my creator and he's your creator. And as the created, we're designed by him for that specific purpose. And if we're not doing what God designed us for, in a sense, we're in rebellion. We're not living the life God called us to. Isn't that tragic? That would be so sad, you know? Well, the other thing too is he can take care of us. You know, he knows what we're about to go through. You know, everybody gets worried about tomorrow. Why? God's in tomorrow. 
You know, that's how I look at it. Hey, if God is with me here today and he's, with, he's been with me in my past all these years, he's gonna be with me in my tomorrow. If I had grace to get this far and I have grace for today, I've got grace for tomorrow. What are you guys worrying about, right? We gotta relax a little bit. God's in control, guys. Well, some of you are looking at me like, maybe. Okay, <laughs> four things that John shows about Jesus. He's preexistent, number one. We see this prophetic announcement. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here but immediately we're, we're introduced to John the Baptist in this book. John's witness is mentioned at the earliest possible moment in the Gospels because the evangelist is primarily concerned to record that by an act of divine con, uh, condescension and infinite compassion, the word entered this disordered world and murky world and entered it precisely in the sphere where sin is most deeply entrenched. He became flesh. Our biggest problem is with ourselves. Come on, let's be honest. Our biggest problem is sin within ourselves. The biggest problem on this planet is sin. Anybody dispute that? That's it. That's where all the evil's coming from, sin. There's the problem. God created a good world. We've messed it up. You know? And do you think we're going to straighten it out? Oh, man, every time we try to straighten out a mess, we make it worse. Okay, some, some of you go, yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So John's job was to come and tell people, like a herald, the king is coming. You know, in the ancient world, when the king showed up, you didn't have, you know... Hey, get on your cell phone, tell everybody. He's showing up at such and such a locale. No, they had somebody running down the street. The king is coming. And on narrow little streets, people had to move out of the way so the king could come zipping on through on his horse or whatever. People had to get, you know, bow down. How many get an idea? The king is, that's a big deal. But not only was it a, you know, an, an overwhelming thing like that, in the ancient world, you could go to your king and ask for help. And so when the king showed up, you could say to him, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Could you take care of this for me? I don't know what to do. And the king would help you. And don't you see that beautiful picture? Jesus comes on the scene. He's the king. And people are running up to him and saying, I, I can't see. I can't walk. I can't hear. I can't think. You know, right? I mean, all the problems people have, right? Well, there's some people I'm not thinking they're thinking. So they need a little help there too. So anyways, Jesus comes on the scene. He's there to help us. And isn't it good news that Jesus is here today? He's here to help us. And he wants to help us. And everything I see about Jesus is this compassionate person that wants to help us in our time of trial. I see it all the time. Now, this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, John did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I'm not the Messiah. They said to him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah, the forerunner? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What to say about yourself? And Jesus said in the words of Isaiah, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. But you know what the tragedy was? They heard, but they could not understand. They saw, but they didn't perceive. Isn't that true about Jesus comes on the scene? They saw all the things he was doing. The whole Old Testament was saying, this is what God was gonna do. 
I'm serious. Everything Jesus was doing, he was actually fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. As a matter of fact, when John the Baptist had doubts, Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm the Messiah. He said, go back and tell him this is what I'm doing. And he was quoting scripture. He says, I'm doing everything the scripture said to do. That's who I am. It was a picture of God himself coming on the scene. Look at Isaiah 35. Let me move on to the third point. The power of the word. How powerful is it? The real authority of the word of God comes to those who receive him. Do you know, it's really sad, but when we don't receive the word, it becomes, it re, it's rendered useless in our lives. How many know that's true? If you and I don't believe what God says, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't change our lives. Every time you and I accept what God says, that aspect of our lives gets changed. How many say this is really powerful? It is really powerful. Think about that. Now, the true light, it says, gives light to everyone coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. Isn't that true today? Still the same thing. He came to that which was his own, which was his own covenant people, but they didn't receive him. We know that some did, but most didn't. Yet, to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. I want to just stop and say this. Every one of us in this room, we have to receive Jesus. And everyone in this room, we have to be born of God. And you know what? When you and I have children, they have to have that experience too. You, I, can't, I, can't, I can have this experience, but I, I, I just, it doesn't just transmit down to Andrea. It doesn't work that way. And she can't transmit it down to Ariel or Ezra. They have to have their own encounter with God. And that's why it's important in the church we understand something. We're all first-generation Christians. There are no second-generation Christians. We're all first-generation. You have to have your own encounter. You have to receive God personally. That's what brings about change in our lives. Uh, and then I like what, you know, C.S. Lewis says something very interesting about what will happen to us in the future. We're either moving in one of two directions. We're either moving towards God or away from God. And he makes this very interesting distinction here in his book, The Weight of Glory. He's talking about the, where, where people are at. He, he describes it this way. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible God and goddesses. Now, he's not saying we're going to become gods or goddesses. He means that we're going to be like God. And we're going to look like God. Can you imagine when we're in heaven? We're going to actually really look like him. We're going to become like he is. But not that we're God, but we're going to become like him in a very wonderful way. We're, we're going to be sinless. How many think that's pretty impressive? How many say, I'm up for that. I have a few issues in my life. I would like to be sinless. I need a little help. Yeah, you know, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to maybe one day be a creature, which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship them. Just like, remember they were tempted to worship angels. Or else a horror and a corruption found only in the nightmare. All day long, we're in some degree helping each other along to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities and it's with the on the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. Now, there's what's he saying to us? He says, if we would understand we're at the end result to where people are headed, you would treat people a lot differently. Better remember this stuff. Let me move on to the fourth point. It's the person of the word. Here we come to the humanity of, of God in the person of Jesus. He becomes flesh. 
It says here, you know, if we want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. And if you want to know what it means to be fully human, what the perfect person is like as a human being, look at Jesus. He's the model. He's the example. He's showing us what God is like, and he's showing us what the perfect person is like. Isn't that a great model? You know, some people think, well, I'm doing pretty good. I never say that because I, I keep measuring my life, not with other people. I'm looking at Jesus. I'm going, I got a ways to go. See what I'm saying? That's where we need to be looking. Don't compare yourself with other people. Paul says that's foolishness. You know, you'll always feel better about yourself or worse about yourself. Stop comparing yourself. That's immaturity. If you want to evaluate your life, look at Jesus. And you go, man, we all got a long ways to go. Isn't that true? That's the model. But listen to what it says here. Jesus says to them, hey, you want to know what God looks like? This is at the Last Supper. He says it to them. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm heading, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. They're going, where are you going? Well, you know where I'm going. No, we don't know where you're going, Jesus. We don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's what we need to understand. Jesus is the way. He's the path. You know, it's not a set of, I, I, I have the right theology. See, some of us, we think it's, if I believe the right things, I'm okay. No, it's following Jesus. It's knowing a person. That's what Christianity really is. He says, if you truly, you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Oh, I tell you, this, Philip got so excited. He said, Lord, show us the Father. It'll be enough for us. I'll be so satisfied. I'll have seen God. Uh, this is what Jesus says. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Let's go back to that Dan Brown quote. You know, they're basically saying, these guys are making Jesus say he's God. He is God. The reason why Jesus was crucified was because he said he was God. Did you guys understand that? See, people don't read it right. That's why he was crucified. Read, read what the high priest said to him. He said, no, you're gonna see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. That's a picture of God. Jesus said, that's who I am. Wow. No wonder they said he committed blasphemy. They thought he was saying he's God. He, he did say he was God. You got it right. But you know what? They rejected their God. And they embraced a false understanding of who God is. Wow. Let me close with this because I'm, I'm out of time. You know, I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus was just a good man. Well, Lewis says you can't say that. You see, the problem is Jesus says he's God. Now, anybody that walks around and starts saying they're God, you start saying, okay, wait a minute. Either this person is a lunatic, or he's a devil, or he's God. But don't tell me he's just a good man. You can't say that about Jesus. That's a very powerful statement, and I, I agree with Lewis. That's exactly the truth. And so we're gonna stand as we close today and I just want to say this to all of us. You know, it's really critical to come to terms with who Jesus revealed himself to be. Now listen to what it says. To as many as received him, to them they can become the children of God. They have the right to become. They have the authority. They have the power to become the children of God. But I put down here, are you willing to receive him on his terms? See, I think some of us, we receive God on our terms. Let's be honest. I'll serve God on my terms. 
No, you're not serving God then. You're, you're serving yourself, making God serve you. You see how twisted we can get once in a while? I think sometimes we do that. Come on, let's be honest. I want God to serve me on what I want, on my terms. You know, no, no, it doesn't work that way. Here's what we need to get. I'm trying to get it across to us. We need to come to Christ on his terms. We need to lay down our lives and surrender our will to him and say, not my will, but yours be done. That's what we need to say. And we need to say it every day. You don't think so? I do. I look at the Lord's Prayer. It's my model for praying. Think about that prayer. If you prayed this prayer every day, how would it change your life? Our Father who art in heaven, I'm worshiping him. Hallowed be your name. What's the next line? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in me. You know, it says, give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But just before that, he says something very important. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Too many of us, we have carried a whole stack of offenses in our lives. Come on, let's be honest. And you know what that does? It's negating the forgiveness God wants to give to you. We need to say, okay, I'm gonna serve God on his terms. That means I have to forgive every single person, thereby receiving God's forgiveness. See, I think when we really know Christ and experience him, forgiveness becomes a way of life. That's part of our spirit. It comes inside of us. We just choose to be a forgiving person. People are gonna disappoint you and fail you. Every, every single person will do that, including me. I can fail people easily. We all fail. We have to have a forgiving spirit. You know, why, why, why do marriages fall apart? People stop forgiving. I'm telling you just the truth. This is the way it is in relationships. When you have a forgiving spirit, you can keep going. You can keep going with people. It's about forgiving. So with every head bowed, I'm gonna give us an opportunity. You know, as many as received him, maybe you're here today say, I wanna receive Jesus. That's my cry. If that's your prayer in your heart, say, Lord, I want to receive you right now. He will come into your life. Just like that. He'll come in. But maybe some of us here, we need to say this prayer. Lord, I want to receive you on your terms, not mine. That would be a far deeper level of surrender. And I believe that you'd be moving closer towards the kind of life God wants you to have. By the way, God's smarter than me and you. He knows what's best for you and I. How many say that's true? I believe it. So if I go, hey God, okay, let's go down your path. You know, after a while, it may seem hard, but after a while you go, hey, this is not bad. I'm starting to enjoy this. Actually, this is pretty good. This is actually better than where I was at before. Isn't that amazing? That's what, I'm, that's what my prayer for you is. I want you to serve God wholeheartedly. That's my prayer for the church I pastor, every one of you. Lord, help them to serve you wholeheartedly. Nothing held back. Amen. So let's just open our hearts to God this, this, after, this afternoon, this early afternoon. Let's just say, Lord, I receive you. I receive you right now. And I'm coming to you on your terms. I'm surrendering my life to you because I know you're my maker. 
I'm the sheep of your pasture. You're, you are my maker. You have a design for me. I want to do your will, O oh God. I'm here to do your will. Whatever you want me to do, I'm yours. I'll do it. And I believe you'll give me the strength and the energy, the wisdom and the grace. You'll provide everything I need to do your will. I believe that with all my heart. I believe you're going to use my life. You're going to be glorified in my life. I will not be ashamed of this wonderful gospel because I'm going to experience it to its fullness. And I thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave today.